0: I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, day-to-day life can have its fair share of problems. We have to work and cook and clean and travel. We There's much to worry about. We worry about money, children, jobs, and relationships. We might worry about aging, dying, whether we're getting enough sleep, uh, how our health is doing, and so much more. And Being a Christian doesn't automatically take away our problems either. Sometimes it seems to add to them. There's life in the church for one thing. We're called to love each other, serve each other, and be united with each other. But at times we might be more tempted to get annoyed with each other, to compete with each other, or just give up on each other entirely. There's nothing wrong with admitting it. All of us, at various times and in various ways, need help. But the question is, where should we look to find help for life's problems? Should our first port of call be Google or self-help books, medicine, psychology, escapism, despair, maybe just gritting our teeth and trying to carry on? Or is there a better place to turn first and most fully to find the help that we so desperately need. 1 Corinthians is here to tell us that there is a better place to turn. In fact, it's here to show us exactly where to look. But just to build the suspense, let me give you a little bit of background before we find out what that better place is. Like many of the New Testament letters, 1 Corinthians is a letter originally written to a specific group of people, a specific church in very real, specific life situations. Paul, the writer, knew this church well. He was uh, involved in planting it and setting it up and had been with them for 18 months back in the very beginning. Planting and establishing this church. You can read more about those 18 months that Paul spent with them in Acts chapter 18, which I think is just nice and easy to remember. Acts 18, have a look at that perhaps um, as you go into reading First Corinthians this month. And you can read more about the city of Corinth itself if you find and take home and take a look at the, um, the RBT overview sheet. There's some really helpful information in there. Now, sometime after leaving Corinth, a few years afterwards, Paul began to receive news that all was not well in this church. A number of problems had arisen. So Paul sat down to write them a letter to provide them with and point them to the help that they needed. Now, the letter can be divided into five main sections, with each section addressing a key problem in the Corinthian church. Uh, now, I just at this point, want to mention my indebtedness this week to uh, the Bible Project. If anyone's seen the Bible Project online and the, and the uh, brilliant overviews they do of Bible books, with they use cartoons and all sorts of things, it's right on my level. Um, so just acknowledge my indebtedness to them now. Uh, I'm, I've, I've lent on them quite a bit this week, um, particularly in spotting these sections. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul addresses the subject of divisions. In chapters 5 to 7, he addresses sex. In chapters 8 to 10, he addresses food. In chapters 11 to 14, he addresses the church gathering. And in chapter 15, he addresses the resurrection. Now, you'll notice these are some pretty diverse topics. There's a relational problem, a moral problem, a lifestyle problem, a worship problem, and finally, a doctrinal problem. So the letter is a lot like, I think, a Q&A, where Paul is at times answering the precise questions that the Corinthians have, have written to him about to ask him, and at other times addressing further issues in the church that he's heard about that need to be um, responded to. And in each section, as, as we read through this month, you'll, you'll notice he follows the same pattern. First of all, he describes the problem. And then he responds with an answer. Now, personally, I, I really do love a good Q&A. If you were at the Q&A we had with Jeff a few weeks back, uh, those kind of evenings I just think are super helpful. I find them super exciting. Maybe you hear them at a conference. Maybe you're uh, into watching Question Time in the evenings and you love the, the Q&A that goes on there. I love the variety of topics you get in a Q&A and, and the very real-world application that comes out of them. One reason that 1 Corinthians is such an engaging read is because it it has this topical Q&A nature. But, unlike a regular Q&A where you might just jump from one isolated topic to another, Paul has a particular overarching theme that he applies to every question. It's a theme that he wants to work into every corner of the Corinthians' lives. Paul's unwavering theme is The gospel. His ultimate solution to all their problems is to show them all of life through the lens of the gospel. He wants to give them gospel glasses, not Google glasses. I think they've died and gone, and gone. But gospel glasses are here to stay and help us today. He wants to help them see how the solution to each of their problems is found in believing and living out the gospel. Now, I, um, I actually looked up this week, what those empty frames were called? We got a picture up there, Sim. You know that the optician puts on you. Funnily enough, you never really see them because you're behind them. But um, I looked up to find out if they had like a really cool, impressive, technical name. It turns out no, they are um, just called trial lens frames, which I think is a shame. Uh, but they are still a great picture of what Paul does in First Corinthians, with each problem. Paul takes a particular facet of the gospel, a particular lens, and drops it into the frame before the Corinthians' eyes so that they can see their problems in a new light and receive the divine help that they so desperately need. One of the most helpful aspects of this letter is that not only does it help us to think rightly about these five specific areas, It also trains us to look at every area of life, every problem in life, through the lens of the gospel and to seek specific gospel treatment for our problems, whether they're problems of doubt or fear, suffering or sin. The gospel is rich enough to offer treatment for them all. So uh, without further ado then, let's get in. Problem number one, Paul addresses divisions. This you'll find is in chapters one to four. Paul has heard uh, reports of divisions and disagreements in the Corinthian church. More specifically, and I just can't imagine it happening here, they're quarreling over who the best leader is. Who's their favorite teacher? Some say Paul, some say Apollos, and still others say Cephas. That's Peter. It's like having rival fans of different football clubs within the church arguing over who supports the best team. Or like groupies of different pop bands. Um, If you're old enough, you remember the the wars that used to go on between the Oasis and the Blur fans back in the 90s. Um, Bickering and bad-mouthing those who disagree with them. Now, I think if I was trying to help them, my gut instinct would be Uh, to talk to them about the different merits of different leaders and encourage them to be respectful of people who have a different opinion to them. You know, I'd say, you you might not always agree, but you've got to learn to get along. But Paul's response is much more powerful. Paul's answer is to reframe their whole perspective on the problem through the lens of the gospel. So we're going to be dropping these lenses in throughout the morning, and we have calling them gospel truths, so the first gospel truth that Paul drops in to address their divisions is this. The church should be centered around Jesus. He reminds them that the church is not meant to be centered around human personalities at all. The church is not a popularity contest. There's only one Jesus, only one Christ who was crucified for us, and he's not divided. He's meant to be the church's focus. All eyes should be firmly fixed on Jesus. And then he adds gospel truth number two, the wisdom of God is nothing like the wisdom of the world. What Paul sees is that the real reason they're fighting over leaders is that those Christians picking sides think too highly of themselves. The Corinthians are puffed up with pride. They they want to look impressive and wise And so they argue and debate with each other and try to find ways to to beat each other. But as Paul explains, the gospel has been deliberately designed by God to look totally unimpressive in the eyes of the world. So in uh, chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, he says this, "'Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? "'For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom?' For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, in God's wisdom, the crucified Messiah, the gospel is a message about a crucified Messiah. It's a message that reveals the weakness of man and the wonderful power of God. It silences all grounds for human boasting. And then Paul goes on, furthermore, he tells them, the church is intentionally made up of unimpressive people. This, this letter is not a letter that's going to flatter us this month. Just look at Paul's description of the general makeup of the Corinthian church, and this would apply to us as well. Uh, chapter 1, 27 to 29, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world. He's talking about the people to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, he explains, the Christian who goes on being proud and arrogant and boastful only reveals how immature, worldly, and unspiritual he or she still is. True spiritual wisdom, the wisdom taught by the Spirit, is found in recognizing our own unimpressiveness, our own unworthiness, and then being utterly awestruck that we should have been saved by the grace and power of God. And then if that's not enough to silence their divisions, he's got one more lens, one more truth. Gospel truth number three, he tells them that the church belongs to God. In the end, the Corinthians are behaving as if their church belongs to them, as if they can make it what they like, build it around whoever they like, and even damage and destroy it if they like. But actually, the church, their church, this church, belongs to God. In chapter 3, Paul describes the church as God's field, God's building, and God's temple, which means he's the one who established it, He's the one who grows it. He's the one who has made the church his special dwelling place on earth. Yes, he's given us teachers and leaders in the church, and between them they might have different strengths. We may even prefer listening to one over another, but they're simply servants given by God to sow the seed of his word into the lives of his people. And Paul's really clear, God alone is the important one, the one who matters, because he alone gives the growth. So divisions ultimately need to be fixed in the church. Paul warns because, and this is a stark warning, he says, God will destroy those who try to destroy his dwelling place. All of this uh, begs the question, where do divisions exist amongst us? And this is something that we can keep thinking about this month as we read When we experience friction in our relationships with others in the church, maybe uh, someone across the aisle this morning, the person sat across from us in home group, maybe the people we live with at home, is it because we've taken our eyes off Jesus? Could it be that we've put something else at the center of our lives? What's at the root of our disagreements? Why do we get annoyed with each other sometimes or make cutting remarks? Could it be that we've become puffed up with pride, too sure of our own wisdom, opinions, and preferences? Ultimately, the question is, do we treat the church as if it belongs to us? Or do we regularly remind ourselves that this people, this family that we're a part of, belongs to God? In spite of the very real flaws that we might see in each other and in our leaders, God is growing us, as encouraging he is building us. He dwells with us. What hope that should give us as we keep striving to put away division and unite around Jesus. There we go. On to problem number two, sex. Find this in chapters 5 to 7. The Corinthians have got all sorts of problems related to sex. Uh, you'll, if you haven't read it for a while, you're just, it's going to be eye-opening to see how, much, how many problems they've got. In this area, some of them are sexually promiscuous. A number of them are sleeping around, including one man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Others are visiting the Greek temples that maybe they used to be attached to, and they're sleeping with the temple prostitutes. It's, it's totally messed up. And they seem to make two particular excuses for their behavior. Firstly, they argue that grace is a license to sin that all things are lawful for those in Christ. That's the, Paul quotes them. It's what they're saying in chapter 6, verse 12. They even boast that their tolerance of each other, uh, on each other's sin, uh, simply demonstrates how free they are in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 6. Their second excuse is their claim that what they do with their bodies really doesn't matter. They, they're saying that their physical bodies have no bearing on their spiritual relationship with God. They argue that their bodies are just something that's driven by natural appetites and cravings. And one day our bodies will be gone and forgotten anyway. Now just think for a moment, how would you respond to the Corinthians in their messed up ideas around sex? Paul responds with the gospel. Gospel truth number one, Christ died to make us holy. Holy. Yes, Christ died to rescue us from the penalty of sin, but he also died to rescue us from its power, to make us into something new. So in chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul says this, Do you not know that a little leaven, he's referring to remaining sin in the church, remaining unrepentant sin, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It spoils the whole church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ died to make holiness one of the defining characteristics of the church, with sexual integrity being one of the hallmarks of that holiness. Sexual integrity is really important. And so Paul tells the Corinthians that they, sh- they must exercise church discipline against those who are in unrepentant sexual sin. The unrepentant must be put out of the church because Christ died to make his church holy. And then, gospel truth number two, he reminds them that our physical bodies are not about to turn to dust. They're actually in the process of being redeemed. Our physical bodies are being redeemed. Our bodies are not destined for destruction like the Corinthians think. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so too he's promised to one day raise us physically from the dead, renewing the bodies that we already have and wear today. So what we do with our bodies right now actually does matter because they're going to last. It also matters, Paul explains, because our bodies don't belong to us now anyway. Our bodies belong to Christ. He tells the Corinthians that they have been bought with a price and united to Jesus. And so he says, glorify God with your body. Sexual integrity matters for the Christian. Now it's also, sexual integrity matters, it's also a very common source of struggle. No doubt all of us have struggled in some ways, frequently, repeatedly, in this area of sexual temptation. It's because sexual integrity matters so much that sexual sin holds such a strong pull. I think the, the world, the flesh, and the devil want us to stumble and fall in this very area because of the damage that it can do to us and the damage it can do to our witness. But there is all sorts of help for us here in First Corinthians Take your time. Let's take our time. Reading chapters 5 to 7, squeezing all the juice out of God's words here. And notice as you read how strong, first of all, the call is to flee sexual immorality. Not just to resist it, but to remove ourselves well away from the sources that tempt us. That's not easy in our hyper-sexualized world in which we live. It wasn't going to be easy for the Corinthians But these gospel lenses show us why it's worth taking radical steps towards being holy. And along with the call to flee, there's an equally impassioned call to run to God, embracing the true extent of his plans for us in Christ, his plans to make us new. So that's problem number two and Paul's response. Problem number three is around food. Quite a fitting week, actually. Talk about food with the uh, cakes that await us afterwards. The third problem at Corinth revolves around food. Specifically, not cakes, but meat that's been sacrificed to idols. This is in chapters 8 to 10. In, in, what you've got to understand is that in Corinth, most of the meat that you could get, that you could buy, that was available, had been sacrificed to idols, to Greek and Roman gods. And so typically, part of the meat was burnt on an altar, Part was consumed by the people making the sacrifices and then the rest was just put on sale in the shops, if you like, or in the marketplace. It was just part of the surrounding uh, culture that the Corinthians lived in the midst of. But a disagreement had broken out amongst the Christians in the church as to whether it was okay to eat the meat that someone else had sacrificed and used in uh, pagan rituals. Some Christians said, yes, yeah, fine, And some of them said, no way. Both made well-intentioned arguments as well, and they, they didn't know how to reconcile their differences. And Paul, unsurprisingly, holds up some gospel lenses to show the way to a solution. Gospel truth number one, he reminds them that our allegiance is solely to Jesus as Lord. We mustn't worship idols. Gospel truth number two, He reminds them that the gods of the surrounding culture don't actually exist. We know, he says in chapter 8, verse 4, that there is only one God. And he's the creator of all things, including the animal that we want to eat. Chapter 10, verse 26, he says, he quotes the Old Testament. "The, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So looking at the problem through these two gospel lenses, if you can eat the meat from the meat market with a clean conscience, not worshipping idols, but just with thanksgiving in your heart, honouring Christ as Lord, then go right ahead. Eat whatever you like, he says, and do it to the glory of God. Except in a situation where you exercising your freedom might create a stumbling block for another Christian with a weaker conscience. Because gospel truth number three our freedom in the gospel is a freedom to love and serve others. Chapter 9, verse 19, he talks about it himself. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Real love, he explains, is willing to restrict the enjoyment of our own freedom in order to protect the well being of others. So, actually, love decides what we eat. So, if you find yourself in a situation, he says to them, where there is meat that's been sacrificed to idols and there are people around who might watch you eating it and say to themselves, well, that's interesting. It looks like he's a Christian. We know that he worships God, but maybe it's possible to worship Jesus and also worship other gods as well. If that's a possibility, then he says, don't eat the meat. It would not be loving to lead your brother or sister astray and cause them to stumble. The bottom line is we should use our freedom to love others more than we love ourselves. Now, I'm sure that perhaps none of us have ever had to wonder about whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's just not something that goes on in the the culture that we live in today. But though the situation is specific to first century Corinth, don't skip over these chapters because the principles are timeless and just as vital today. Let's consider as we read chapters 8 to 10 in the next three or so weeks how these same gospel principles might play out in determining perhaps where and when we decide to drink alcohol, or in assessing where and who we engage with in friendly banter, just throwing these out there, or in deciding when and when not to spend our money on certain luxuries. And there's probably a whole lot of other sort of categories we could think about as well, but there's some things to get us started. Let's think about how we can use our freedom in Christ in these different areas of life in ways that bless others rather than causing anybody to look on and stumble as a result. Problem number four, chapters 11 to 14, the church gathering, what we're doing here this morning. The fourth set of problems in Corinth centers around their weekly worship gathering. There were many amongst them uh, who were rightly enthusiastic about experiencing the Holy Spirit's presence in their meetings. They were eager to exercise certain spiritual gifts. But in practice, some were just jumping up and praying loudly in tongues that no one could understand. Others would begin to bring a prophetic word or an encouragement from God, and all of a sudden someone else would jump up and talk over them and interrupt them because they wanted to use their gift as well. Everyone, pretty much, was primarily concerned with showcasing their own gifts and making sure that they had a turn. And the result was chaos and confusion. And worst of all, it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the good news about Jesus. So what kind of solution can Paul's gospel lenses bring? Gospel truth number one. He reminds them that all spiritual gifts are given by the one Holy Spirit. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. What that tells us is that our gatherings are not meant to be spiritual gift competitions. We're not trying to outdo each other or impress each other with our gifts. Instead, Paul says, we ought to picture the church as being like a human body. We are each, by God's design, different to each other, with differing gifts, differing contributions to make to the rest of the church. And like the human body, we're all dependent on one another, just like the eye needs the hand and the hand needs the foot. My gifts are not for my edification, or to give me a spiritual experience, no, chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Which brings us to uh, the second vital gospel truth. Gospel truth number two, love should dictate what takes place when the church gathers. Just as the gospel powerfully reveals God's love for us, so our church gatherings ought to reveal our love for one another. As Paul explains in the, the famous chapter 13, which maybe if you're married, you had it read at your wedding, he explains that without love, even the most profound spiritual gifts and impressive acts of service are worthless and gain nothing. We should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, chapter 14, verse 1, but always with the express purpose of using them to love and serve others, not ourselves. Our primary aim, in fact, when we gather each Sunday, shouldn't actually be to see how spirit-filled and charismatic our meeting could be. Our primary aim should be to see the church built up. That's the reason we ought to be coming, says Paul. That's the goal that should energize us to get up in the morning on a Sunday and come here. And then, Paul says... Just you wait and see in what diverse and powerful ways the Spirit will manifest Himself when we come with the desire to see others built up. What all this means in practice, according to the final part of chapter 14, is that our meetings should be orderly so that everybody can learn and be built up for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. So spirit-filled meetings are orderly meetings. Spirit-filled meetings are meetings where we come with the desire not to exalt ourselves or to showcase our gifts, but to build each other up with the gifts and the abilities that the Spirit gives to us. Final problem, problem number five, the resurrection. You find this in chapter 15. The final problem that Paul wants to address in Corinth is a doctrinal disagreement over the resurrection. Apparently there were those in the church who wanted to deny the resurrection of the dead. They're talking about both denying the resurrection of Jesus himself and then denying the idea that we will one day rise from the dead. Perhaps it seemed a bit too far-fetched to them or perhaps they thought it would make Christianity more palatable to unbelievers if they scrapped it. We're not told really why they've come up with this idea But whatever the reason, they claimed that they could throw out the resurrection, just get rid of it, and it would make little difference to the Christian life. Now, perhaps we've heard or read teachers today who tell us that we can remove fundamental gospel truths like the resurrection or Christ's atoning death or the idea that salvation is found in Christ alone, (coughs) and they say that in reality it will make no difference, very little difference to living the Christian life. Just to give an example, I remember reading, it was a fair time ago now, many years ago, uh, the book Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. Um, And I was surprised that a book that was being recommended by, by so many Christians and some Christian friends, not people here but elsewhere, was so clearly teaching heresy. He described doctrines as being like springs on a trampoline and said that it was possible to remove certain springs and still keep bouncing on the trampoline. And in particular, he was suggesting that we might be able to remove the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the virgin birth, yet still love God and carry on living as Christians. Now, hopefully we can see the the grave error there. And in Corinth, we might look on and say we disagree. But what does the gospel itself say to such serious theological errors? Well, two things. Gospel truth number one. Certain truths are an indispensable part of the gospel message. And the resurrection is one of those indispensable truths, as is the doctrine of the Trinity and the virgin birth. So in chapter 15, verses 3 to 8, here's what Paul writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the (coughs) scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection, he says. Is an indispensable part of the gospel message. It's a matter of first importance. It's also a historical fact attested to by over 500 witnesses. Gospel truth number two the Christian life only makes sense in light of the resurrection. What Paul makes clear to the Corinthians is that everything is lost if we lose the resurrection. Just turn, if you've got your Bible open there, to chapter 15, verses 17 to 20. First, in verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. He's saying, if Christ didn't rise, then his death didn't achieve anything. It wasn't sufficient to pay for our sins, and so we're still in them. Then verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. No resurrection means believers who die are just lost and gone forever. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying if there's no hope that one day we will be raised to new life, then the sacrifices that we make in this life to be Christians, to follow Christ, are quite simply madness. Christianity is left pitiful, miserable, and meaningless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, which not only provides a daily source of power to our lives, enabling us Uh, Chapter 15, verse 58, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. But it also proves that he was victorious over sin and death and that one day we too will rise. And then these glorious words in verses 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? In the end, when we boil it all down, it's Jesus himself who is the source of all help and hope in the Christian life. Richly stored up in the good news of our crucified and risen Savior is a solution to every problem, a pardon for every sin, a comfort for every fear. As the, uh, the writers of the Bible Project, those guys with the cartoons I was telling you about, they round up their summary of 1 Corinthians like this. They say the gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus, that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. The gospel should always be the first place that we turn in our need, asking God to meet us, to help us, to show us our problems through new eyes, and so be transformed day by day more into the image of his Son. Our plan to read through First Corinthians this coming month is an opportunity to do exactly that and to encourage each other in that together. Let's anticipate that God will richly meet us in his word and through his spirit and that he'll give us real tangible help for our deepest needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us <laughs> this morning and for the encouragement you've given to us to read First Corinthians. Please, Lord, would you continue to help us as we read it Please help us to find stored up in the gospel of our Savior the ultimate solution for all of our problems, the pardon for all our sin, and a comfort that lays our every fear to rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.